Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica. I am so glad that you're here with me today. I usually save this for the end, but I thought I'd change things up a little bit. If you have any suggestions or things, comments you'd like to make about any of the episodes before or on the Anthony Allen Shore case, please contact me. You can find me at Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime, or you can send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, please rate, leave a five-star review, subscribe, and tell a friend if you like what you're hearing. Now, last week, we found out that Anthony Allen Shore had finally had a hit in CODIS on the DNA. And Catherine Long was just about to call and report it to the detectives working on Carmen's case, Diana's case, and Dana's case. So things are about to change in Tony Shore's life. And if you are just now finding the podcast and you're just now tuning in, I suggest you go back to to Tony Shore part one and two so you can get caught up. But everyone else, let's jump back in where we were. On October 16th, 2003, Detective King received a phone call while he was at home. Detective Holland asked him if the name Anthony Allen Shore meant anything to him. And King said no. After all these years and going over the case over and over again, he had memorized the name of every suspect in the case. And he knew that he did not know who Anthony Allen Shore was. Holland told King, we're going to research this guy and we're going to do it without him knowing we're doing it. When police began looking into Tony Shore's background, they discovered that he had been arrested six months after he had killed Dana Sanchez. Now, of course, at this point, they don't realize that he's also Dana Sanchez's killer. On Valentine's Day, 1986, Tony and Amy got into a fight and he left their house looking for someone to make him feel better. A young woman offered companionship to Tony for cash and he was all in. But instead of a night of fun, undercover officer Alicia Ross slapped some handcuffs on Tony Shore and hauled him in to spend the night in jail in a holding cell. Tony Shore made bail the next morning, and on March 26, 1996, he received a sweet deal. No jail time and only three months of unsupervised probation that would end on June 25th, 1996, and he was required to pay the court costs of $122. So, again, Tony Shore flew under the radar. Now, after living together for three years, Tony and Amy finally got married. And because Tony didn't want anything to spoil their time together, he sent his daughters, Amber and Tiffany, to live with their grandmother, Deanna Shore, in Sacramento, California. And in part one, we talked about how Tony made all kinds of terrible allegations against his mother. She was abusive. She molested him. She was so terrible. But like we also talked about, everyone else in the family and people who knew their family said that wasn't true. Deanna Shore did not abuse them. And so I find it very interesting that supposedly she's so horrible, but Tony's like, hey girls, go live with your grandma. 
So fairly soon after the girls moved in with their grandmother, she knew that she could not care for both girls. And so Tiffany went to live with her aunt Regina, Tony's sister in Oregon. Now, Regina immediately noticed that Tiffany was not the happy, carefree girl that she used to know when she would visit them in Texas. There were also some red flags popping up. Tiffany slept in her clothes. She wore multiple layers of clothes at all times, and she refused to bathe on a regular basis. She also spoke very, very violently and used sexually advanced speech for a girl her age. So Regina started talking to Tiffany. And Tiffany told her aunt that her father had been sexually assaulting her and her sister, Amber. Regina called her mother and told Deanna Shore what she had learned. She also followed it up by telling her mother that Tony had also assaulted her and their other sister, Laurel, when they were younger, too. So Regina, remember, Regina's, Regina's turned in Tony before. And now that... Deanna and Regina have the girls. Regina's convinced she's going to make this stick this time. Tony's not getting out of it. Now, the 11-year-old girl said she wanted to kill her father for what he had done to her and her sister, and understandably so. She followed it up by saying that Tony would beat the girls, pull them around by their hair, and kick them. And he would also tie them up in sheets and put a pillow on their faces if they cried, and he would threaten to kill them. She said that at first, she would wake up and find her father standing in her room naked, fondling himself. And then it progressed to her waking up and he was touching her. Then finally, he actually forced himself on her one night while Amy was out of the house. It just, ugh, it makes me sick. Amber corroborated Tiffany's story and confirmed that the same things have been happening to her too. So on Friday, October 31st, 1997, Regina Shore made, made sure that charges were officially filed on her brother for molesting both of his daughters. On Friday, January 23rd, 1998, Tony Shore appeared in court for two charges of indecency with a child. Tony's attorney somehow managed to get him another really sweet deal. He received no prison time at all and was placed on probation for eight years. He had to pay a $500 fine and his court costs of $126.50. And they even let him pay it out in 10-month increments. So, not only was his charge dropped down to indecency from molestation, but... He didn't have to go to jail, and he only got a $500 fine. It just kills me. Now, he also had to register as a sex offender every 90 days with authorities and meet with his probation officer every 15 days. He was assigned 240 hours of community service and was not allowed to leave Harris County without approval from his probation officer. He was not allowed to drink alcohol or take any illicit drugs, and he was ordered to go to drug and alcohol counseling and submit random drug tests. He also had to attend a sex offender therapy program, and he could not be in public where ch children gathered or live with a child. The last requirement of his probation was that he had to give a DNA sample to the court to keep on file. 
Tony Shore did his drug test without missing a beat, but he drug his feet for as long as he could before he gave up that DNA sample. Now, Deanna Shore was furious about the light sentence given to her son. She said that the girls had nightmares that their father was going to hunt them down and kill them for turning him in. They were terrified. No one could understand why this was all that Tony Shore got. Another thing that made no sense was Tony's house was right across the street from an elementary school. And remember, he's not supposed to be anywhere where kids are, but the judge said, well, you can continue living where you are. Makes no sense. When Southwestern Bell found out about Tony's conviction, they fired him immediately. Now, Tony immediately filed a motion to withdraw his plea agreement and said that he didn't really have adequate time to think over everything about this agreement and that he really should get another chance. But the judge denied his motion. Amy and Tony's relationship began to crumble after he was convicted. I mean, he lost his job and Amy didn't have a job, so they began struggling financially. And Amy said that this was when all of Tony's charm just kind of went out the window and his behavior became very bizarre. He started enjoying going to places that he was not allowed to go to to see if he would get caught. And of course, he would make Amy go with him everywhere. He was more controlling over her than ever. The day before he had to give his DNA sample, Amy came home to find him pacing. He told her that he was going to make her famous. But instead of excitement, his comment filled her with dread. She, she knew that this was not about being famous in a positive way. Tony then tried to convince her to just get on a boat with him and run away. And they lived somewhere that the United States could not ever extradite him back from. Amy was confused. She had no idea what he was talking about. And she just stared at him. She didn't know what to think about all this strange, erratic behavior. Even though Amy has stood by his side throughout everything else, she was finally forced to realize that she needed to get away from Tony Shore. In the win winter of 1999, Tony drugged Amy's drink. She awoke to find him squeezing her throat with his bare hands. Now, Amy pretended to be unconscious, and so then he finally stopped. And she fully believes to this day that he was trying to kill her. And if she hadn't laid there and pretended to be unconscious, that he would have gone through with it. While she was feigning her unconsciousness, Tony flipped her over onto her stomach, pulled off her underwear, and had sex with her. Now, she continued to be to pretend that she was passed out. After he was done having his way with her, he then flipped her back over onto his back and began pounding on her chest violently with his fists and then breathing into her mouth in a weird rhythm, trying to resuscitate her. The breath that he breathed into her mouth was so painful to her already very now sensitive throat since he tried to choke her that this caused her to choke. She began coughing violently and she sat up and stared at Tony Shore. She never said a word to him and he didn't say anything to her either. But she was scared for her life now. So she laid there in bed next to him all night. 
thinking that she wasn't safe. And she knew this. So the next morning, Amy left their house and went to stay with a friend. And on January 20th, 1999, she filed for divorce and never went back to the house that she and Tony Shore lived in. Now, Tony just blamed it on the fact that, you know, he didn't do anything wrong. It was Amy being greedy because since he didn't have a job, he couldn't provide her with all the creature comforts that she used to have. Like, come on, dude, you almost killed her. But remember, he never takes responsibility for anything, and he always spends it where nothing's ever his fault. So even though Tony Shore's life was going downhill real fast, he needed to find another woman. So he met Pauline Cody in January, pretty soon after Amy walked out. Pauline Cody was also 14 years his junior, just like Amy. But Pauline had been in rehab for alcohol and drug abuse. And after she had gotten out of rehab, she moved from Austin to Houston to live with her aunt and uncle in the Heights. Now, remember, that's the same neighborhood that Diana Rebillard had lived in where Tony found her. Pauline thought that a fresh start in Houston would help her get her life back on track. And she was making great strides in her personal life. She had a job at C&D Hardware and a second job at Buchanan's Nursery. She was doing so well that she was able to lease out an apartment in a fourplex just blocks from both jobs. So things were looking up for her. She had two great jobs. She was able to move out of her aunt and uncle's house and support herself independently. And then even better, one day a man walked into the hardware store and asked for her help. Now she did not know what tool the man was looking for and had never heard for it. So he just smiled at her and said he'd find it himself. Pauline thought he was cute and he seemed so nice. And he didn't even seem bothered when she didn't know what the object was he was looking for. So the man walked around the store, found what he was looking for. And when he returned to the register to pay for his things, he asked her if she'd like to go out with him that night. Remember, Pauline had been through some rough times and she hadn't been out on a date. And he seemed nice and he seemed charming. And so she agreed. She was flattered. She thought this was great. And so she gave him her address. Tony Shore and Pauline Cody had a nice dinner. And then they went out for coffee after their meal and continued to talk. Pauline was having such a good time that she asked Tony Shore if he would like to go back to her apartment. And of course, Tony happily agreed to this offer. They talked late into the night. They wrote poetry. Uh, and he told Pauline about being on probation. But, of course, he wasn't truthful. He put his own spin on things. Tony told Pauline that his mother had put his daughters up to the accusations. And Pauline, having been through a tough time herself, felt sorry for Tony. And she believed his story. Now, Tony Shore courted Pauline and swept her off her feet. He took her to nice restaurants. They went out to the movies. And of course, he wooed her with his music. He played music for her and sang. Pauline also opened up about her past. And Tony informed her that he was separated, but his divorce would soon be final. And within just a few weeks of the meeting, Pauline moved out of her apartment and into Tony's home. After they moved in together, it didn't take long 
for things to go downhill with Pauline. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. After they moved in together, Tony tried to choke Pauline during sex. She told him to stop and never do that again. When she asked him why he did that, he just smiled and he said, some people get off on that. I thought it might enhance your pleasure. I'm sorry. But she also knows that Tony's work situation became very sketchy. One month he worked for a towing truck company and he was making great money. And then the next few months, he wouldn't be working there anymore. He'd moved on to somewhere else. When Tony's probation officer would come for his visit, Tony would hide out and remain silent until he was gone. And he made Pauline do the same thing too. He hated his probation officer. And I mean, reasonably so since he wasn't following any of the rules of his probation. One of those reasons was that he didn't want to see his probation officer. Remember, he had to take random drug tests, but uh, he'd started using cocaine heavily. And of course, that wasn't allowed. So he began hiding out, but when a, instead of the random checks, when something was scheduled, he would lay off the drugs just long enough to clear the system so that he could pass his urinalysis test if they gave him one on his scheduled visits. Now, after his divorce from Amy was final, things really began to spiral downward. He quit sending child support payments to his mother and his sister for Amber and Tiffany. And his drug use finally caught up with him. On August 29th, 2000, he failed his mandatory drug test and had to spend 20 days behind bars. Now, of course, again, he lied to Pauline to explain where he had been and smooth things over with her. Because remember, he finds these ladies. They're, you know, easily manipulated, lies to their faces, and convinces them that nothing's ever his fault. Now, because of his sketchy work schedule and not taking care of his business, Tony and Pauline had to move out of Tony's house. Now, eerily, they moved into a townhome located directly across the street from where, remember Coral Watts, where he killed Elizabeth Montgomery. It's sort of eerily fitting that one serial killer moved in near where another serial killer had been. I don't know. I just think that's real weird. During this time, Shore kept telling Pauline that time was running out for him. But Pauline had no idea what he was talking about. And he kept telling her something big was going to happen but he never would explain to her what that something big was. Now, eventually also they were unable to pay for the townhome. So they moved into a CD pay as you go 
hotel apartment. It had, um, you know, it was just one of those places where you could pay by the night, you could pay by the week, you could pay by the hour, but it was small kind of like little efficiency apartment type setup deal. Now, even though they couldn't pay their bills and they didn't have anything anymore, there was one thing that Tony always kept on hand and that was cocaine and tequila. Even though, of course, remember, that wasn't allowed on his probation, but Tony didn't care. Now, one evening, Pauline began to feel very woozy and she couldn't keep her eyes open. She went to the fridge to get some water and she looked into her drink and realized that there was something kind of white powdery flakes floating around in it. And she asked Tony what that was. And he laughed it off and said, oh, just a little something I put in a drink to help my friend take advantage of another woman. Well, normally Pauline would have been appalled by this, but she was so out of it herself. She couldn't even think straight and she just went and got in bed. Well, when she went to bed, she woke up and she found herself in her bed naked. Tony was on top of her and he was choking her. Now she fought him off and screamed at him. And she had told him, what are you doing? I told you the first time I did not like that. Why would you do that to me? As usual, Tony shrugged it off and smiled and said, I'm so sorry. The next day, Pauline left Tony Shore and moved in with her sister. And she didn't look back. I will say this. These women that Tony lives with, marries, I know he manipulates them. I know he does things to them. But bless them, at least when it comes down to brass tacks, they leave and they don't come back. So at least kudos to them for that, that once he gets to that next step with them. They're like, nope, gotta go. Now, Tony Shore didn't stay single for long. He set up an online dating profile and he said that he was bohemian funny. And he soon met 50-year-old Linda White. Now, Linda was different from the other women in Tony's life for lots of reasons. First of all, she was actually age appropriate. Also, Linda was very put together. She had a good job. She owned her own home and she had a great relationship with her family. So she really had no need of Tony, but she hadn't dated for a while. And so her sister thought that she needed companionship in her life. And she actually set the dating profile up for Linda without telling her. And at first Linda was a little irritated, but then, you know, she was kind of glad because she hadn't gone on a date in a while. And so when Tony's profile pop, popped up, she thought, why not? She e They emailed back and forth for a while. And then after they talked online for a little bit, Linda shared her phone number. And then they spoke on the telephone a few times. Linda decided that she wanted to meet Tony in person. And she thought the best way to put Tony Shore to the test was to invite him over to a family dinner at her mother's house with her adult children. She thought if he can handle all this, then he's probably okay. So it, when Tony Shore came over, it was Linda's mother, her 21-year-old son, Josh, and then her 20-year-old twins, Jason and Kristen, 
and her five-month-old grandson. Tony turned on that charm and he was a hit with everyone. He engaged in conversation. He really made sure to talk to her oldest son, Josh. Josh was also in a band and so they hit it off right away. They talked all about, Josh was heavy metal and remember Tony played in a jazz type band, but they had so much in common and talked music all night. And also Tony and Josh both loved true crime. So they had tons in common and Linda loved this. She was smitten. But one thing put her off a little bit. Once they started going out, Tony pushed to move into Linda's house very quickly. And that just kind of set off a little bit of a warning sign with her. And she didn't want that level of commitment. Another thing that bothered her was that she came across a piece of paper that said he was part of a treatment program. Well, Linda questioned Tony about this. What kind of treatment program was he enrolled in? And Tony, of course, seemed very embarrassed and sheepish, but he told Linda his version of what had happened. Just like Pauline, he lied and said that his mother had put his daughters up to saying that he molested them, and she framed him. This time, just to make it even worse, Tony threw in that his mother had also tried to extort money from him, and she had been abusive to him all of his life. Now, Linda was beside herself. Tony was so sincere that she believed him and she felt sorry for him. And so she agreed to let Tony move in with him. Now, things at first, just like in all of Tony's relationships, they went well for quite some time. He spoiled her. He romanced her. They didn't even fight. But... One thing Tony failed to mention to Linda was that part of his probation was that he was not allowed to live in a home with a computer. Now, usually Tony got home from his job before Linda, so this gave him some free time in the afternoons all by himself. One afternoon, Linda got home a little early from her work and found Tony online looking at a website for missing persons. Now, Tony seemed very startled when Linda walked in, and she asked him, Why are you looking at a website for missing persons? He told her that he was looking for his daughter, Amber. And he pointed to a picture of a young woman and said, I think I found her. Now, Linda had never seen any pictures of either of Tony's daughters. And he distracted her. And so then she didn't even ask, why was Amber missing? Remember last time she had heard, Amber was living with Tony's mother. Now, Tony also was not allowed to look at or possess any kind of pornography, but he didn't follow up on that rule either. He kept a big old giant box of porn in Linda's garage, multiple different pornographic magazines and other things. Some of them had titles like barely legal, gross. I mean, we know Tony's just an awful individual, but I mean, bleh. Well, Linda... Of course, had no idea that any of this was in her garage because, as usual, Tony hid everything. Now, one night, while Tony and Linda were having sex, he tried his choking move on her. Well, Linda was having none of that. 
She swatted his hand away and immediately got out of bed and asked him, what the hell are you doing? He laughed it off and said, oh, just something I thought you might like. Linda told him in no uncertain terms that that was not something she would like and he better not ever do it again. Linda started to notice that Tony had a lot of other strange personality traits that before she had blown off, but now she was starting to get fed up with him. He was immature and he was arrogant and he liked to pick fights with her. Sometimes the fights would get so bad, Linda would storm out of the house and go stay at a nearby hotel to get away from him. Now this left Tony, and of course she began to get more and more resentful about this because Linda had left her house, but there Tony was in her house with her kids with her things of course as bad as the fights were when linda would leave tony then would be just as relentless hounding her until she came back home on friday october 24th 2003 Catherine long called to confirm that she had a positive match on the dna under carmen estrada's fingernails Detective Bob King began to research Tony Shore. He wanted to know everything he could about the man they were pretty sure had killed Carmen, Diana, and Dana. Captain Richard Holland determined that it was time to go after Tony Shore. He had Detective King contact ADA Kelly Siegler to assist with a warrant to search Linda White's house. The more police learned, Captain Holland decided that Shore was way too big of a threat to the public and he wanted to go ahead and arrest him. So, he also had them draw up a probable cause warrant. They went to the judge in the court where Tony was on deferred adjudication already, and the judge signed off on the probable cause warrant and the warrant to search Linda White's house. Everything was put into place. They did not want anything to go wrong. It had already taken them this long to even find Tony Shore, so they sure didn't want some little clerical, clerical error to put a kink in things. So police were ready to arrest Tony Shore. And on Friday, October 24th, 2003, Houston Patrol Officer Robert Farmer got a call. They told him to go to Champion Collision Center and arrest Tony Shore. Tony was standing in the parking lot, smoking a cigarette. When Officer Farmer pulled his squad car up and stepped out of the car about 20 feet from Tony Shore. And he told him, you are under arrest. Shore didn't say a thing. He just stood there and stared at Officer Farmer and kept smoking his cigarette. Officer Farmer said, please drop the cigarette. Tony continued to smoke and defiantly stare at him. So Officer Farmer got out his flashlight and in his own words, cracked Tony Shore on his knuckles. And so Tony Shore dropped the cigarette. After that, Tony Shore went willingly and Officer Farmer said there really wasn't any other incident during the arrest. At first, Tony's family was shocked. Linda called his father, Robert Shore, and asked what should she do. But Robert Shore advised Linda to break contact with Tony. Seventeen officers showed up at Linda White's house to execute the search warrant. Detective Bob King was in charge, and he told Linda what was going on. Linda told the police she had no idea about any of the things they were asking her. The police searched her entire house and garage. They confiscated her computer. They found Tony's big old box of porn. 
and they found some cocaine. After 10 years of Detective Bob King looking at Diana Rebillard's picture every day when he went to work, he finally felt a little bit of relief. They had arrested Tony Shore and hopefully they were going to be able to finally get some justice for all of his victims. At 4.53 p.m. Friday, October 24th, 2003, Detective Todd Miller was the first person to get to question Tony Shore. Detective Miller introduced himself to Tony and read him his rights. Shore waved them. He asked Tony if he would like something to eat or drink and Tony said no. Detective Miller informed Shore that he was under arrest for the murder of Carmen Estrada. He told Tony that his DNA had been found on Carmen's body. Now, he didn't give him any specific details about where that DNA was found on Carmen. He wanted to hopefully let Tony tell those details. He also told Tony the general area of where Carmen was found, but again, nothing specific. Their conversation was very congenial. Detective Todd Miller and Tony talked for three hours. Tony answered all of the questions that Detective Miller asked him and asked a few of his own, but he never confessed to killing Carmen. At 8.05, Detective Miller asked Tony if he needed to use the restroom or if he wanted something to eat or drink. Tony again said no. Detective Miller left the room. Now, one thing I think it's interesting to note that all of the detectives that question Tony say that one thing that surprised them, all of them about him, was that when they're questioning a suspect, no one ever felt comfortable enough to call them by their first names. But even though Tony was polite, he was congenial, it was very important for him to use their first names. So when he addressed Detective Miller, he did not call him Detective Miller, he called him Todd. And they all thought that was very interesting. It, and they all felt like it was Tony's way of trying to put himself on a level playing field with them. But anyway, I thought that was a very interesting point that he did it with all of them and they all agreed it was very, very odd, very different. Now, detectives decided that maybe someone new should go in and start questioning Tony. Maybe a new face would shake things up and Tony's resolve would crack and he'd start talking. So it was now Sergeant John Swaim's turn. Swaim introduced himself and told Tony that he would like to talk with him about Carmen Estrada. Sergeant Swaim said that he would lay out all the evidence that they had against Tony and then let him decide what his next move would be. Very congenial, very laid back. Then Sergeant Swaim read Tony his rights again and again, Tony waved them. Sergeant Swaim told Tony, he said, look, you're here because, specifically, because your DNA was found underneath Carmen's fingernails. He asked Tony if he knew Carmen. Tony said no. He said he had no idea how his DNA could have gotten under her fingernails. Throughout the entire line of questioning, Tony looked Sergeant Swaim straight in the eye. He remained calm and collected. He was unlike anyone Sergeant Swaim had ever questioned. In fact, Sergeant Swaim really started to think that Tony didn't know how to tell the truth and that he was 
probably one of the most intelligent individuals he'd ever come across, which of course made him even more scary. At 9.25 p.m., Sergeant John Swain left the interrogation room and then Deputy Wedgworth took over. He spoke to Tony about the murder of Dana Sanchez. Tony said nothing, so at 10.15, he left the room. Detective Todd Miller went back into the interrogation room. Tony still answered questions, but this time he was a little quieter, a little bit more subdued, seemed maybe slightly a little less sure of himself. Detective Miller pulled out a binder and flipped it open to pictures from Carmen Estrada's crime scene. He pulled out several of the pictures and laid them out in front of Tony. Now, Tony, of course, turned his head away immediately, but then turned back right away and stared at them. And then throughout the rest of the questioning, he couldn't take his eyes off of them. Now, Miller told him, that they knew he was responsible for all the murders. He wasn't fooling anyone. They had the DNA to prove it. Just come on, go ahead, tell us the truth. Now, Tony never denied the allegations, but he also would never confirm them. He would just tell Detective Miller, I don't remember. Because, you know, of course, it slips your mind when you brutally murder three women, you know, all the time. Now, they went back and forth for another 90 minutes. And finally, Detective Miller said, you know, Tony, maybe there's someone else that you'd feel more comfortable talking to. Maybe one of the other officers you feel more comfortable with, that you trust more. And Tony said, yes, I would prefer to talk to Sergeant John Swain. So at 11.50 p.m., Sergeant Swain re-entered the interrogation room and asked Tony, hey, what's up, man? What do you want to talk about? Shore responded by saying, sit down, John, sit down. Remember, Tony's on a first name basis with everybody. So, Sergeant Swain sat down. Tony Shore looked Sergeant John Swain directly in the eyes and asked him, what would you do if I confess to the three cases that you already have on me, and then I gave you two more as a bonus. Swaim said that he doesn't know how he was able to keep his composure when Tony Shore said that, but he did. He knew that if he feigned surprise or he acted like in any way this was a big deal that Tony Shore might shut down. So he very nonchalantly said, that would be great, Tony. Tony Shore said that he had an evilness in him, and he thought that if he confessed that evilness, it would be released, and then maybe he would feel better. Because, you know, we're only concerned about Tony's feelings. It doesn't matter what he's done to all these other families. Sergeant Swain remained calm and nonchalant, and he said, sure, that would be great. Tony said, though, before he talked, he wanted to know. What would he be charged with if he confessed? Swaim told him that that really wasn't up to him. It was really something that the district attorney's office would decide. But if Tony told Swaim what he thought he was going to tell him, then it would be a capital murder charge. And then that would either result in life in prison or the death penalty. 
So Tony Shore sat for a few minutes and then he looked up at Sergeant John Swain and he said, does the name Lori Tremblay mean anything to you? It meant a lot to John Swain. Detective John Swain could not believe his ears. You see, in 1986, Swain and two other officers were called to a Nymphas restaurant where Lori Lee Tremblay was found murdered and left in the parking lot. Swain, and of course it went unsolved, but it was another one that Swain worked so hard on to solve. They didn't give up. That's the thing about Anthony Allen Shore. This isn't like other serial killers where the police just kind of let it go. They worked everything, but Tony was smart. And at the time, technology, science just hadn't caught up to any of the evidence that they could get. So John Swaim had never forgotten about Lori Lee Tremblay, and he couldn't believe he was hearing this. So Swaim got out a tape recorder, laid it on the table, put it in front of Tony Shore, pushed record, and politely said, please continue your story. And that's where we're going to stop today. There's still a lot for you to hear. First of all, Lori Tremblay's story and the other person he's going to confess to. And then we got to get him sentenced, y'all. So hopefully I will be able to wrap it all up for you next week. But there's just so much. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember, if you have thoughts, comments, other suggestions, you can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime. You can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. And thanks for listening today. And I will see you again next week. Bye.